We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today, including Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Washington Nationals. I'm looking forward to having Mike on the show. It's been a while, actually, since I've had Mike on radio or the podcast. Tommy and I had Mike on uh, a lot when we did the sports fix together on 980, but then 1067 The Fan became the flagship home for the Nationals, and he had uh, an exclusive obligation radio-wise to do that station. But Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Nats, coming up in the next segment, followed by our good friend Ben Standig. Ben uh, wrote a column uh, that appeared today in The Athletic that named the all-Dan Snyder-era team the best players to ever play at each position during the Dan Snyder era. Ben will be on with us uh, coming up uh, in the final segment today. We'll talk about a couple of other things with Ben as well. Uh, There was a a very interesting story that broke overnight uh, in the Washington Post, written by Nikki Javala and Mark Maskey. Uh, And that story, of course, deals with the sale. I'll get to that uh, here momentarily and a couple of other things. But first... The show today is brought to you by the Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Contests. These are the biggest pro football contests and pools in Las Vegas. Uh, presented by the Circa Resort and Casino and Sportsbook. The Circa is the biggest and best sportsbook in Vegas. If you're going to Vegas, go to the Circa Sportsbook. By the way, say hello to our good friends Tim Murray and Aaron Oster. Aaron produces the show, and he works at the Circa. Uh, But there are $6 million, all right? $6 million there is in guaranteed prizes in the Circa Million, a million dollars to the winner. This contest is a $1,000 per entry contest with a maximum of five entries per person. You pick five teams against the spread every week, and at the end of the year, the person with the best overall record takes home a million bucks. But there are another five million in guaranteed prizes with quarterly and season-long contests and prizes uh, available as well. There's $100,000 that goes to the person with the worst record. 
uh, in the Circa Million. Uh, the Circa Survivor is a survivor pool. If you you know have done survivor pools, this one's no different. It's just a lot larger. You pick one team straight up every week to win, no point spread. Uh, once the team loses or ties, that entry is out. You can only pick uh, you know one team. Uh, once per season, but there is an $8 million guarantee to the winner or winners. $6 million was split by two winners last year. Uh, but if you're the only person to win that survivor pool, $8 million. bucks. Uh, by the way, you do have to sign up in Vegas at the Circa or one of the Circa properties, uh, but you can make your picks from anywhere. All right, uh, a couple things to get to before we get to Mike Rizzo into Ben Standig. And I'll start with the story in the Washington Post early this morning, written by Mark Maskey and Nikki Javala, that describes legal snags between the league and Dan Snyder that threatened to complicate the commander's sale. An alarming headline, and, you know, some of the quotes in here are a bit alarming as well. I'm not that alarmed. Uh, I'll get to that here in a moment. Let me read from the story. Uh, It starts, issues in the legal negotiations between the NFL and representatives for Washington owner Daniel Snyder threatened to complicate the approval and closing of Snyder's $6.05 billion sale of the franchise to a group led by Josh Harris, according to two people familiar with the conversations between attorneys for the league and Snyder. Let me uh, interject Uh, right there. Just so everybody's clear, this is not an issue between Dan and Josh Harris. Okay, that deal is done. That deal was fully executed, all terms agreed upon, and the only thing it waits on to be closed, uh, the deal to be closed, money to be wired, etc., is for three-fourths of the owners to approve Josh Harris. This is also not an issue between Josh Harris and the league, not an issue over the structure of the deal, the debt associated with the deal, the number of limited partners in the deal. This is between the league and Dan. I continue with the story. It was not clear late Wednesday night whether those complications will affect the NFL's plans to have team owners vote to approve the sale at a, at a meeting next week in Minneapolis. That's you know the July 20th scheduled vote on Josh Harris. According to one of the people with knowledge of the deliberations, the complications are related, at least in part, to legal issues pertaining to the leaking of emails that led to the October 2021 resignation of John Gruden as coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Sound familiar? Yeah, we spent all day on yesterday's show, or a lot of the show, talking about the Don Van Natta, Seth Wickersham story, uh, ESPN.com, detailing a lot of the uh, you know, John Gruden leaking email motivations, who leaked the emails, what the consequences to those leaked emails were, one of which was that was the beginning of the end for Dan Snyder as owner of the team. Um, and so this is a story now that comes out a day after that story that says there's a problem between the league and Dan over indemnification related to the John Gruden leaking of emails. Um, Back to the story. That person described the complications as, quote, significant and not just some small snag, 
closed quote, expressing the view that the issues could delay the owner's approval of the sale and the closing of the deal if they're not resolved. But the person also left open the possibility that Snyder and his attorney and his attorneys merely are attempting to extract last minute concessions from the NFL on legal indemnification related to Gruden's lawsuit against the league. There's a quote from one of the two sources, quote, hopefully it gets resolved. But at this point, it's serious, closed quote. Um, There's a part of this story that also speaks to Michelle Snyder. Uh, Michelle Snyder is part owner of the Commanders. And according to one of the sources for this story, uh, Nikki and Mark Maskey write, part of the complication relates to Snyder's sister, Michelle, being unwilling to agree to indemnification of other owners from legal liability in the Gruden case. Michelle Snyder is a part owner of the Commanders, and all limited partners must agree to the provisions in the sale agreement. Let me just interject there for a moment. I would assume that that's already you know, happened, that all of the partners in the Commanders ownership group with Dan Snyder, his sister and anybody else that has, any, has a share uh, or two in the team, They've already agreed to the parameters of the sale agreement because the sale agreement was fully executed. I guess there could be something in that agreement that says pending, you know, the indemnification situation being resolved between the league and the team, I guess. Um, There's another part of that paragraph that I wanted to read. That person also said Daniel Snyder no longer is willing to sign an affidavit that he did not leak the emails that led to Gruden's resignation after previously being willing to do so. According to a person familiar with the communications between the commanders and the NFL, the team's view is that all of the commander's owners have agreed to indemnify the league for any damages arising from the actions of the owners and the team. Such an agreement, however, would not necessarily apply to the actions of Goodell and Pash, as in Jeff Pash, the league's number one attorney. According to a person familiar with the communications, uh, I'm sorry, that person also said that Snyder has already testified under oath before the oversight committee that he neither leaked the Gruden emails nor directed or authorized anyone to to do so and does not know who did. That person said Snyder has not refused to sign an affidavit to that effect. So we've got conflicting information right there. One person saying Snyder is unwilling now to sign an affidavit affidavit stating that he didn't leak the emails. And somebody clearly close to Snyder saying that he has not refused to sign an affidavit. And also suggesting that this isn't about indemnification for damages, you know, from the actions of owners and the team after he's left, but this is about actions of Goodell and Pash. So it's a lot here. It's a lot the last two days. I understand. I think this thing is going through um, because, and I think it's going through in the time frame in which we thought it would be going through, which is next week, because. There are, you know, mutual motivations here, mutually aligned motivations here. The league wants this to end. They want Dan gone. And at this point, I think Dan wants to go. I know his family wants this to end. Look, he's got four and a half to five billion dollars sitting there a week from now that's going to be wired into his account. 
I know that he's a wealthy individual and they're a wealthy family, but still, once the debt gets paid down, it's like four and a half to five billion dollars. I think the part of this story early on that read um, that Snyder and his attorneys merely are attempting to extract, that it's possible that Snyder and his attorneys are merely attempting to extract last-minute concessions from the NFL, that to me is what this reeks of. It's Dan doing Dan stuff. It's like, you know, he can't let this thing... One of the first things I remember saying about the potential sale of this team when it was first you know, brought to our attention with the news last November that the team had retained Bank of America to explore this possibility. I remember just having this thought and sharing it with all of you and with Tom where I said, you know, he has screwed up every single thing that he's ever done. Is it possible that he could screw up the sale of the team? And yeah, that possibility has always existed. But remember, we've gotten through a lot of that. There is a final, you know, executed deal. The owners are ready to vote on Josh Harris. This indemnification stuff is a little bit complicated because, you know, we've, you know, thought the indemnification may have something to do with the Mary Jo White investigation or going back to other investigations or other lawsuits, including including the Eastern uh, District of Virginia's criminal lawsuit. Or maybe even it's been suggested that Dan doesn't want to have anything, uh, you know, doesn't want to be liable for anything related to anything the league's done while while he was owner. You know, things related to like the Brian Flores situation. Um, so I, I think it's going to happen. I just think this thing's moving forward. I think this is Dan doing Dan things. Um, and, uh, and look, you know, Gruden, Gruden wrote those emails. Like, Gruden isn't the coach of Las Vegas anymore, first and foremost, because of the things that he wrote in those emails. The fact that those emails were leaked, I don't know, and Neil and Rockville was on with me this morning, I don't know if that necessarily means that he was slandered. I don't know if that means that he, you know, was... Um, defamed in any way, uh, you know, Neil suggested that maybe, you know, it, it has to do with, you know, intentional distress, you know, put on Gruden. And that's why Gruden's continuing to get there. Gruden just wants this thing to get to trial. So there's discovery so that the league gets embarrassed in a major way. And by the way, maybe we kind of missed the headline of yesterday because we were so wrapped up in everything related to Dan in the Van Natta Wickersham story. Maybe the real headline is Goodell. Because if Goodell was involved in leaking these emails, and there's this treasure trove of stashed emails with Jeff Pash, as it was, you know, described in the story, um, maybe Goodell's finally in trouble. Uh, but anyway, I think this is going to happen. I do. And I think this is Dan doing Dan's stuff. But if anybody could screw this sale up, a $6 billion sale, the largest in the history of North American sports, it would be Dan Snyder. So I wanted to um, mention that last night I watched seven of the eight quarterback episodes, this Netflix series following last year 
Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and Marcus Mariota. I, I, I'm a complete idiot, I understand, but there was nothing going on in sports last night. There was nothing really to watch. My dog, I think I discussed this the other day with Tommy, had recent surgery, so I have to keep a close eye on her. We all do. So she was just lying down on the ground on my lap last night as I sat on the ground um, with her. And I started episode one, and five hours later, it was like 12.30, and I had completed seven of the eight episodes. And I have a major, major takeaway from these episodes. And it has to do with Eric Bieniemy. But before I get to that, let me just mention that every you know, most of you know I'm, I'm I'm a big Kirk Cousins fan. I was when he was here. I'm a Kirk Cousins fan as him of him as a person, of him as a quarterback, um, and I think I've always had it right when it's come to Kirk. I do. I've never suggested that he was an elite quarterback, but I've also uh, always suggested that he is a top half of the league. You know, at you know, and at, at times it's he, he's been you know right around the top ten in the league as he is right now. Um, and if you put a team around him, you can win with Kirk Cousins. And uh, you know, I'll never ever really understand. It's not true. I do understand why they moved on from Kirk Cousins. Um, they weren't sure, and that's that was a reasonable position to take. But I will never really understand the way they handled the situation. Um, not trading him there at the end when the 49ers were willing to offer uh, number two overall at the very least. Um, you know, p- publicly summarining him uh, after he turned down their insulting offer for like the third time, an insulting offer. Look, they set him down the path of the franchise tag. Um, and they were a shitty organization to be a part of. And once Sean McVay left, Kirk wasn't going to stay anyway. We've been through all this. Anyway, the parts about Kirk Cousins um, are really good. Now, he is a total dork. I mean, and I think he tries a little bit too hard on all this stuff that he uses. Look, he is so dedicated to being the best that he can be. You should see what he goes through and some of the things that he does. I mean, he meets with a psychologist. He's got this brainwave machine. I mean, it's one thing after another. It got a little bit much, even for me, on some of that stuff. Um, But he is a true pro. Uh, And... The part last, um, when he came back to Washington, was great. Uh, There was a whole segment of one of the episodes on Minnesota playing at Washington, and they loved Washington. I remember him telling me that how much they that he loved Washington. How he and his wife would literally take, you know, from Landover after a home game, um, they would take the route back to Virginia, going through the city, so that they could drive by the monuments and see the city lit up at night, and how much they loved living here. Um, but anyway, the Kirk stuff was great. The Mariota stuff was really good. By the way, Kirk really, what you found out, played injured for much of last year. Uh, he, he was the most hit quarterback in the NFL last year, and he had you know, um, injured ribs for much of the season and, and played through that. Mariota, um, that stuff was great. Uh, he's a likable guy. But then again, at the very end of the Marcus Mariota a tenure in Atlanta, uh, his his time in Atlanta last year, he basically bolted 
when Desmond Ritter was named the starter. Um, it also happened literally the day after his wife uh, had their first child. Um, Patrick Mahomes, uh, there's so much to the Mahomes story last year that's so interesting. His wife is annoying. I will mention that. And I think a lot of people have mentioned that on social media. Um, Mahomes uh, is, he's an interesting dude, man. But I, I the, the the real cool, um, first of all, this is a very well done show. Let me just back up a little bit. You know, these guys are mic'd up at home. They're mic'd up in the building at practice and, you know, going through all of the physical therapy stuff, all of the, the medical stuff. We see them, you know, with their kids, with their wives. We see them, you know, attempting to stay as healthy as they can during a long season. We see them in-game. I mean, you get access like you really, you know, we, we see the NFL film stuff is always great stuff, but we've got, we've got a ton of excellent in-game moments. And by the way, each one of these episodes, I mean, they move so quickly. I mean, they seem to be over before they've even started, but the Mahomes injury in the Jacksonville playoff game, that was fascinating to watch. Andy Reid, the team doctor on the sideline, they wanted him out. He would he refused to come out. But then, um, if you recall, the backup quarterback goes in and leads a 98-yard drive for a touchdown. And you know he comes out in the second half and plays, and they end up winning that game. Um, but it was amazing what Chad Henney was able to do coming in in relief. I, I had forgotten about that part. Henney, Henney, Chad Henney coming in and leading a 98-yard drive that led that 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 culminated in a touchdown pass to Travis Kelsey for a 17-7 lead. That was a very um, competitive game. Um, but that whole back and forth uh, between Mahomes and Reed, Mahomes and the doctor. Um, Mahomes and Matt Nagy, which I'll get to here in a moment, um, during that game was great. So let me get to what, for me, was by far and away the biggest takeaway. And I'll preface it with two things. One, I have not seen the final episode of this series, episode eight. I'm going to watch that tonight. And that's the episode that will include Kansas City in the Super Bowl against the Eagles. Um, I've watched uh, every episode up until that final episode, but nothing about Super Bowl week and Super Bowl game, etc. Um, the other thing I'll, I will say is I understand that this is an edited, you know, uh, series that there's a lot left uh, that they use, that they had available to use for each one of these episodes that wasn't used. With that said, Eric Bieniemy is insignificant in any of these episodes. The three musketeers of Kansas City Chiefs offensive football are Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid, and Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy is the one that is constantly interacting during games on the sideline with Patrick Mahomes and Chad Henney. Andy Reid is constantly talking to Patrick Mahomes. They're you see Eric Bieniemy occasionally, and he's usually sitting on the bench as Matt Nagy and Patrick Mahomes and Chad Henney are looking, you know, uh, over uh, uh, play charts and 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 Microsoft um, uh, uh, video uh, on what's going on in the game. And Bieniemy's not participating at all, at all. Again, edited, 
Maybe the best parts of Beanie were edited out for some reason. Maybe the best part of Beanie is coming. But what was very clear based on what we saw in the seven episodes of the eight is that Matt Nagy was the offensive coordinator. Matt Nagy was the confidant for Patrick Mahomes and for Andy Reid, not Eric Bieniemy. But again, could have missed out on all of the, you know, uh, it could have been left on the cutting table. All of the big Eric Bieniemy contributions to the Kansas City offensive team last year. And I'm not suggesting that he didn't contribute anything. I'm just saying what I watched, and many of you watched and told me the same thing because I talked about this on radio this morning. But there is not much Eric Bieniemy involvement in this show. Maybe it'll all come in the final episode. And that just leads me to this. And for whatever reason, like the conversations with Carson Wentz last summer, the conversations uh, about the team name, the conversations about, you know, Sam Howell, some of you are really sensitive to any sort of, you know, identifying uh, red flags. Uh, and I told you the day they hired Eric Bieniemy. Eric Bieniemy got hired by Washington. Many of you said, well, why would he take the job in Washington? Well, because he had nowhere else to go. That's why. Washington was the only place that offered him a job. Everybody else that interviewed him didn't offer him a job. Kansas City is thrilled that he's gone. Steven Spector suggested to, to me, Steven, remember, was with us at the radio station for many years, now runs a sports talk radio station out in Kansas City. And I remember when Eric Bieniemy got hired, I had Steven on radio. It may have been on the podcast. And Steven said, look, Matt Nagy is Mahomes' guy. Matt Nagy was going to be the offensive coordinator, you know, whether Eric Bieniemy was here or not. That's just what it is. Now, would he have been rehired by Kansas City if Washington didn't hire him? Maybe. I mean, I can't imagine Andy Reid letting him twist in the wind wind unemployed. But let's just understand that multiple things can be true here. Eric Bieniemy was available because nobody else was interested. It's also possible that Eric Bieniemy will flourish being away from and underneath, you know, and away from the shadow of Andy Reid and Matt Nagy and Patrick Mahomes. It's possible. But he's here because this was the only place willing to take him. Now, early returns, everybody seems to like him. And maybe Washington's the place for Eric Bieniemy because they've needed a hard ass. They've needed some discipline. But I do really think at the end of the day, Eric Bieniemy's act wore thin in Kansas City. And Kansas City was moving away from Eric Bieniemy. And once Matt Nagy got fired in Chicago and went back to Kansas City, he's the, he's the guy. And these episodes make that very clear. Again, understanding that maybe a lot of the Eric Bieniemy involvement was edited out. Or it's to come in episode seven. That's all possible. All right. Um, Dalvin Cook, 
Uh, Bucky Brooks now is the latest to think that that Dalvin Cook to Washington makes sense. I'll hold off on that. We'll talk to Ben about that when Ben is on. Uh, But up next, Mike Rizzo, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Believe it or not, Mike Rizzo has been the general manager of the Nats coming up on 15 years, uh, making him easily the longest-running GM in town. And uh, and why wouldn't he be? I mean, when he took over in 2009, he built an organization that made quite the run, eight seasons uh, starting in 2012, five times to the postseason, and of course the World Series in 2019. They won more games over that span than any team in the National League with the exception of the L.A. Dodgers. And it is my pleasure to have Mike on the podcast with me right now. You've been here you know, longer than 15 years. It's been probably like 18 or 19 at this point. Does it seem like it's been that long? You know, I, I often say that the uh, you know the days go slow, but the years go fast. And uh, yeah, this is my 17th year in the, in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, I signed here when when the learners signed the ownership papers. I signed my first contract here in uh, in 2006, uh, and uh, been here ever since. And uh, took over the GM spot uh, in spring training of 2009, and uh, it, it's been. Uh, it's been a wild ride ever since, uh, but I uh, I love the city. I, I love the environment. I, I love uh, you know, I love what we've built here. Uh, we've got a good culture, uh, and, uh, and and I can't wait to uh, to uh, start uh, winning more championships. And that's that's our goal, and that's our vision. I think a lot of people hope you're here for you know another um, seventeen as well. You know, you just said uh, you like being here. You're from the Midwest. I know you lived in Arizona for a while, among other places. Um, but, you know, in this city, because it's so transient, although sometimes I think that's overrated, but, you know, 17 years makes you, for all intents and purposes, like a legitimate Washingtonian. Do you feel like one, and have you really enjoyed living here? Oh, I do. I, I feel like it. I, I'm from Chicago. I, you know, was born and raised in Chicago and, you know, kind of a baseball nomad uh, you know, when, when in my scouting, uh, in my scouting days, and then uh, I became an executive. My first executive gig was in uh, in Phoenix uh, with the Diamondbacks, so I had to move there for uh, eight years. But uh, well, yeah, we're uh, 
I feel like I have roots here. I I, I live here. I mean, I'm I'm three blocks from the ballpark. Right. I uh, you know I've uh, I, I've watched this neighborhood grow up. Uh, you know, uh, right before my very eyes, and uh, and I do feel part of the community. I, I you know. Uh, my neighbors know who I am, and I, you know they see me sitting on my in my front porch and uh, smoking a cigar every so often, and uh, and uh, we have some nice conversations. Though, so uh, yeah, I, uh, I I feel part of the place, and uh, and I uh, I really enjoy it here. You know, um, I, we talk uh, as you probably know a lot about the football team uh, in this town, and I've always said like the football team because their home base is way out in Loudoun County, and virtually. Everybody associated with the football team lives out in Loudoun County. I think they've missed out on living in Washington. You know, that's way out there uh, in terms of of suburbs. But you guys, and and by the way, the Wizards and, and and the Caps as well, you've gotten to you know exist professionally and personally, you know, in the city or certainly very close in to the city. I, I think that's such a benefit, you know, for because I look. I'm a born and raised Washingtonian. I'm from here. I think it's a, a great city to live in and raise a family in. I do too. I, I, I like I, I like the fact that uh, you know uh, I, I I'm not I don't like to drive much. So it's it's you know all the restaurants that have popped up and all the places to go and uh, you know walk to work and and you know walk to get something to eat or get a beer. It's uh, it's been great and. The people, the people, uh, you know, have uh, you know, accept those things. They never bother. They never bother me, at least. Uh, you know, uh, and all the comments I get are, are supportive and, and positive, and uh, and it, you know, I, I interact with them just like I interact with anybody, and it's uh, yeah, it's very refreshing, and uh, I I enjoy that aspect of it. Do you have a go-to restaurant in town? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, t- you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an Italian American, so uh, you know, Filomena's to me is one of the best Italian restaurants in the country. Right. I, I love that place. Uh, uh, you know, I I, uh, I go to uh, I go to you know some bars down. Uh, I live I live in Navy Yard, so that just everything's p- popping up there. It's uh, it's crazy, and uh, uh, and you know this. Uh, the, there's there's a bunch of uh, a bunch of sports bars and everything everything down here. So you don't have to go far. Uh, you don't have to go far to uh, you know to find to find some good uh, good place to eat or drink in this and uh, in in this neighborhood and in this, in this town. Philomena has been in that spot in Georgetown forever. By the way, I would say that your hometown of Chicago is a much better food town than DC. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, there's uh, there's more. There, there's there's probably as much quant- quality here that Chicago the the quality and quantity is is hard to beat that's for sure yeah um, all right uh, I wanted to start baseball talk with this how much of why the team is where it is right now which is in rebuild mode how much of that has to do Mike, with not being able to take advantage of a World Series championship and everything that would have come with it, but didn't because of the pandemic, I think that has a lot to do with it. I, you know, we we uh, we you know we got very unlucky with that. Uh, you know, we had a magical you know nineteen season, uh, and you know usually uh, uh, you know teams get that uh, that big that big time bounce for the next couple of years with, uh, with revenues and that type of thing. We, we never got that, uh, uh, you know, we never got to, uh, uh, to raise the banner or, 
in front of fans and, you know, do a ring ceremony in front of fans and that type of thing, uh, which is uh, unfortunate. But, but uh, I think, the, you know, the revenue aspect of it is, is uh, tangible. It was it was real and, and it was it was extremely uh, un- unfortunate for us. Has anybody, I would imagine somebody's done it, and I'm, I, I just have never seen this um, reported on, has anybody quantified what the loss in what would have been new revenue, incremental revenue to the franchise was by not being able to never, take advantage I've, of that? Yeah, I've never seen it or, or, or read it anywhere. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure that you know maybe some internal uh, uh, things uh, uh, around here. We've done it, uh, but I, I've never seen it. it. You know, it just you know common sense. Uh, and and uh, in past history, it, you know, tells you that uh, that you know the those teams you know usually, usually get that big bump and that big boost the, the next couple of years afterward. Of the decisions you've had to make over the last couple of years, in particular, or the organizations had to make over the last few years, you know, Scherzer, Turner, Soto, etc. Ha- has there been one that was more difficult than any of the others? I mean, as, as far as uh, implementing the the, uh, the strategy and the and the uh, uh, you know you know once we made the decision to uh, to that we were going to tear it down and and, and rebuild it the right way, I, I think you know the the, uh, the 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 fortunate part was that, uh, that we 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 had no gun to our head with any of these trades. You know, we were going to make a good trade for for Juan and, and for Trey and, and for Mad Max. Or we weren't going, to, or we weren't going to make it. So that that was that was fortunate that ownership gave gave us that uh, opportunity. Uh, and uh, you know, Max had full full no trade, and he was he you know he kind of let us decide where he was going to uh, where he was going to be traded. At, you know, at the end there because he had full control of it. Uh, so that made things a little bit more complicated. But uh, but I, I think that. Uh, that you know, the big decision was that you know the global decision was uh, you know in uh, in 21 uh, uh, to uh, are we going to rebuild or or, or uh, are we going to buy at that that deadline and uh, and you know that was a uh, that was a decision an organizational decision that you know like like all of our decisions here you know our baseball operations ownership and everyone gets our heads together we kind of come up with a, a plan and a blueprint for you know what's best for uh, for the organization long term i know it's too early to to actually come to a conclusion on any of these deals that you've made big deals that you've made in recent years but do you have a hunch or a gut feel on the one that you'll look back on and say yeah, that was that was a really good deal for the franchise. Uh, as far as far as the rebuild goes, yeah. Uh, any and any of the bi- any of the big trades that, you, that over the over the last couple of years, do you have a gut feel on the one that right now you feel like four years from now we're going to look back and say, "Wow, what a deal that was for the franchise." Hopefully, all of them. Well, but, th- yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, I, I was going to say, hopefully, all of them. And, and you know, this uh, the Juan Soto trade to to the Padres is you know it was a was a trade that. Uh, of historic significance, I think, because you know, no player with that uh, with that age at that age with that service time left and with that ability level uh, I, I was was ever traded. And uh, you know, the return we got uh, uh, via prospects and young young major leaguers, you know, we felt was you know was uh, exactly what we were looking for. And I and I always say that uh, you know the greatest trades that are made 
benefit both uh, parties. And, uh, you know, the Padres were going uh, in their direction. They want, they needed a player like Juan Soto. They had the, the, uh, the prospect that we needed to, uh, to make the trade. And, uh, and, you know, so we've got, we got ourselves a, a, a prospect package uh, that satisfied us, and uh, you know where we were at, at our at our timeline, and when they were at their timeline. I think we both uh, achieved our goals and got what we wanted to get in the, in the trades uh, to set us up, uh, uh, you know, for uh, for the future. So where are we, Mike, right now, calendar wise, uh, in the build back to being a con- uh, to being a contender? Like you know, I, I think you could see the uh, uh, the uh, uh, improvements that, that our young core uh, of major league players are. Uh, you know, you know, with the you know the Ruiz and the C.J. Abrams and the, and the Garcias and the Grays and the Gores and the Irvins. I think you see those guys uh, as as really uh, you know key components of, of our next uh, uh, championship caliber uh, roster. Uh, you know, you've got Lane Thomas on, uh, on that on that list that could be a, a contributor uh, on that uh, on that next team. Uh, and then you see you can see the timeline and the buildup of of the prospects. You know, our last four drafts have been impactful. Our last two trade deadlines have been impactful. And uh, you know, this uh, this draft, uh, the draft in twenty three. You know, once we get all the players signed and and, and out there playing in the minor leagues, we think will be impactful again. And you know, we have a trade deadline uh, coming up in a couple of weeks that I think will uh, will help uh, expedite the process. So, you know, when you've got yourself two twenty-two, you know, I was reminded in the draft from the other day that there's be two hundred or two hundred fifty players drafted in this this twenty-three draft that are older than uh, Luis Garcia and C.J. Abrams that are already in, in the big leagues. Uh, and so, so it's it, when I say it's a good young core of major league talent, it's you know, it's going to be. Uh, you know, players that are going to be with us for, you know, for a long time and, and uh, hopefully be key contributors to the to our next championship. But on kind of the timeline, what would you tell, you know, a hardcore Nats fan on when they can expect for, you know, a team that's at the very least contending for a wild card spot? 2025? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to... I'm not going to give a specific date or year, uh, but I, I think that you know we we have an educated fan base here, uh, and you know I read all the time their their breakdowns of our prospects and our <laughs> and our young major league teams, and and uh, you know yeah I think that uh, I think that uh, you know there's there's no there's no time capsule for uh, how players develop uh, in in the minor leagues. Uh, they all they all have their pace and. Uh, uh, they all do it at their own timeline, uh, but I think that you see the influx of these of these really talented, really good, really high thought of prospects in the minor leagues, all coming together and, and ascending uh, throughout the minor league ranks at the same time. You know, it's uh, it's not uh, it's it's not uh, far fetched to uh, to believe that it's uh, it's it's sooner rather than later. Tell me about Dylan Cruz. Well, Dylan Cruz, uh, you know, is a, a heck of a career. He's he's won every award that you could win at, at the amateur ranks, and uh, and uh, you know, as far as uh, on the on the scouting end of it, I, you know, he's got great skill and and, and ability. He's a good hitter. He's got power. Uh, he's got a he, he swings at strikes, and uh, he's a good defender with a good arm and good speed. Uh, I, I think what separates him from a lot of other players with you know with that five tool ability is. 
this kid's got the you know baseball knowledge and the baseball IQ and a character that uh, that's that's hard to match. And uh, he's won everywhere he's been. Uh, he's won every award there is to win. Uh, and uh, you know he it all culminated with a uh, a national championship uh, and. You know, you see him walking around with the hardware, smoking a cigar. I could just envision him in years to come doing that again at the big league level with a Nationals uniform on. Um, who's who's his major league comp? I don't do comps. Uh, you know, he's Dylan Cruz, and he's going to be a hell of a player uh, uh, down the road. You know, you know, eight, ten years, you'll be on your podcast, and you could say, who, you know, who's the? Uh, he reminds me of Dylan Cruz. You know, MVP and All Star. So that's. That, uh, we'll be comparing people to Dylan Cruz soon. <laughs> I'd rather say that Mike Rizzo told me back in 2023 that Dylan Cruz was a Mike Trout comp. And look at the career he's had. He's had a better career than Mike Trout. Um, so uh, the trade deadline you mentioned is coming up in less than three weeks, I think, uh, August 1st. Um, and this is always a high drama period of of the of the calendar how important is this one going to be for you um they've all been important here in recent years but how active do you guys think you'll be you'll be well i think we'll be fairly active you know we're uh, we've, we've got good players that uh, that teams uh, uh covet and uh you know if we get the the return that we feel uh, is justified uh, we will pull the trigger and make a deal we've never been afraid to trade uh uh, in in this uh, in this front office, uh, we've made as many trades, probably more trades than most people have, and uh, uh, either on the buy sell or the sell side. So uh, we're uh, we're we're excited about it. We're you know we we you know we look at it as an opportunity to improve ourselves uh, again and and to get closer to that championship caliber roster uh, that uh, that we here in the front office ownership uh, and the fan base want, and uh, and I think that. Uh, you could, you know, you, we you could start see the uh, the light at the end of this tunnel, and uh, I think that uh, that when we come, we're going to come. Uh, when we get back, we're going to be back with a vengeance and uh, going on another eight or ten year run of of, of sustained championship caliber baseball. What's that day like for you? Is it Billy Bean, you know, Brad Pitt and Moneyball? Is it that kind of day with multiple phones and getting everybody and putting them on hold? Is that is that day a rush for you? Yeah, trade deadline day is, is great. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, I always, I always say that, uh, you know, draft day is the most important day of the baseball calendar because it uh, dictates your future. And trade deadline day is getting – it's getting uh, uh, more and more. Cl- it's getting closer and closer to that that importance. That's uh, you know we've had uh, again. We've had two very uh, very impactful uh, uh, trade deadline days, and uh, and hopefully for, uh, we get, uh, have the same success uh, in in this one and uh, get us closer to get where we want to be. All right, I know you got to be somewhere, so just two more and we'll be done. Um... The the team this year, I think it's been more competitive than maybe most thought going into the year. There have been a ton of close losses. There have been some, I mean, hell, the series with Texas right before the break was really, uh, really impressive. Uh, taking two of three in Philly um, was impressive with uh, how well they've been playing. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, why has it been more competitive than maybe most thought? Well, we looked at that. We looked at the uh, uh, roster coming out of spring training, and, and we thought that you know uh, certain things, were, <coughs> certain things would have to fall right for us to, <coughs> excuse me, That's to, right. uh, to 
to uh, to you know for us to be successful, uh, and uh, and for the most part, uh, you know they they have to an extent. You know you could you could see uh, uh, what what we are what we are missing uh, to be you know to be a legitimate really good team is consistency. Now you see C.J. Abrams making you know high you know ESPN highlight plays, uh, highlight real plays at, at shortstop, and you see him. You know, uh, you know, squaring up balls, and uh, Louis Garcia the same thing, and uh, and uh, and Gore striking out eleven and twelve, and 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 Gray and and Irvin, you know, his last six seven starts. You know, we picked the ball up, and Candy is, you know, Candy's playing great third base, and uh, Dom Smith is saving infielders, you know, errors by his play at first base. You could see it. We're just not seeing it uh, uh, in a consistent enough basis, and uh, that's the that's the hallmarks of, of young players. Young players are uh, are prone to have uh, streaks of uh, of uh, crazy ability and and crazy success. Uh, but this is a long season, and it's difficult for you know any player. But you know when you're looking at 22 and 23 year old. Uh, Inexperienced major leaguers to uh, to focus in uh, you know, on you know if you're a shortstop focus in 170 80 pitches per game because that's what you have to do you don't focus in game by game or inning by inning it's pitch by pitch uh, when you when you when you have figured it out and when you're successful and you're really good it's it's pitch by pitch uh, that you have to stay focused in and it's exhausting and it's <laughs> yeah. difficult for uh, for young players to uh, to uh, achieve that on a nightly basis, but they'll go through. They'll go weeks of it. They'll go through weeks of of, uh, of this and and be outstanding, and then kind of uh, you know have some lapses where you know you kick some routine ball, balls or you give away at bats at, at the plate and that type of thing. And uh, that's that's what uh, this experience at the big league level is all about. And that's why the more experience you get up here, the more success you have up here. Uh, will build uh, will build us uh, up for uh, when we do take that ne- next step, uh, you know, like we did in 2010 and 11. When we got to 2012, we went from 100 losses to you know 80 losses to 98 wins, and then uh, we went on a run, you know, for uh, for 10 years. So that's that's the that's the blueprint we have. We think it's well underway. We think it's 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 uh, uh, the plan is going well. Uh, uh, terrifically, uh, uh, actually, and uh, and uh, you know the, the, these last couple of drafts and these last couple of trade deadlines have really put us in position to uh, to make to make sure that uh, we're going to be uh, a championship caliber club soon. All right, last one because I think as you describe that, and I think there's a lot of people that believe you uh, and believe you'll do it again, but want to make sure that you're here and a part of it. And we know that your contract runs out at the end of the year, and you've got this ownership situation in flux. So, you know, how will that get figured out? How are you dealing with that, and how do you think it'll conclude? I don't worry about it. I do my job. I uh, I, I I continue to uh, to you know come in every day and uh, and and lead the franchise, lead the organization, and meet meet with uh, meet with uh, our front office, our scouts, our player development guys. Uh, you know, I meet with Davey a couple times a day. We talk strategy. Uh, I'm always around the, the clubhouse, so uh, I control what I can. I control the controllable, and the, and I control how, my demeanor every day and how I uh, how I interact with people. And 
and, and the decisions I make uh, are, are always in the best interest of, of the Nationals' long-term view. And just because I'm, a, I'm on a one-year contract, uh, that doesn't change that. I've been on a lot of one-year contracts in my life. I was a scout for a long time, and I was on probably 20 one-year contracts in a row. And uh, I, I, that doesn't scare me or bother me. My, my, uh, my, my, resume, my resume is my, uh, my reputation, and, uh, and I, I feel that uh, that speaks for itself. Uh, it does. Thank you for doing this. It's good to catch up. I hope you're well. Thanks, Kevin. Good talking to you. The best general manager in town by far over a long period of time now, Mike Rizzo. I appreciate him doing that. All right, up next, Ben Standig right after these words from a few of our sponsors. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This segment of the show is brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC, and you can secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. You have to use my promo code KevinDC. All of their week one point spreads are up. Uh, all of the college uh, week one, actually there's a week called week zero in college football. That's the week before Labor Day when there are some games like Notre Dame-Navy. Uh, Notre Dame is a 20-point favorite over Navy in Ireland um, in week zero of the college football season. But all of those lines are up. All of the NFL preseason prop bets are up. And no, there is not a prop bet on whether or not the sale of the commanders will close a week or so from today. But go to mybookie.com, mybookie.ag. They'll take good care of you if you use my promo code, Kevin DC. Jumping on with us right now is our good friend Ben Standig from The Athletic. Follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standig. Uh, and listen to his podcast, uh, Standig Room Only, um, which you can get anywhere you get a podcast, just like you can get my podcast anywhere you get a podcast. Ben, of course, writes for The Athletic. I'm a subscriber to The Athletic, uh, and I would urge you uh, to be one as well if you are not. So... I have a few things that I want to get to before we get to your column, which you put out in The Athletic this morning, which is a, I talked about it briefly in the open, but it is a uh, an all-Dan Snyder era team. This is a positive. 
These are the best players at each position during the Dan Snyder era. So we will get to that, and we will debate some of your selections here in a moment. But two things before that. Uh, First of all, your reaction to the Post story, uh, Maskey and Nikki Javala's story, about legal snags potentially complicating the sale. Yeah, uh, well, you know, first, you know, I don't know who they spoke to, obviously, and there's, you know, so many different people you could be talking to about this matter um, from the team or around the league or the hair side or, or whatever. So I don't know who they talked to. Uh, just based on the people that I've checked in with and my own sense of the, of the lay of the land is I'm not getting too worked up over this. I mean, obviously, you know, every time you like come on and you say to me some version of, Hey, well, you know, what do we think here? Is this going to happen? I always throw in the caveat, you never know, because of Dan Snyder and all the things that are going on with him, including the topic of getting indemnification or the league getting indemnification from him with regards to the group emails or perhaps anything else that, that's out there. But that said, I, I just really don't have a sense that this is like a an alarmist issue um, I, I, for everything I know, they're still taking the vote on the 20th. And, you know, for them to get to that point, I just don't see that they would vote against the vote no. Or, you know, somehow that, that wouldn't pass at that point. So, uh, you know, look, uh, I think there could be still something in there about the indemnification aspect of it. But I don't, I don't know that I see that as being a huge issue. And I will just say from the Snyder perspective, you know, for me, at some point during this whole saga, the the primary reason why he's selling, in my best guess, estimation, talking to people, whatever, that it's more about the debt than it is the all you know all the congressional Mary Joe White stuff that we've been talking about, and that I don't think that's changing. Like you know, I'm not saying he's going to be cutting coupons in a few weeks, but like the month, you know, getting out from under. Seems like the bigger issue, so I just don't know that that's going to, therefore, from his perspective, uh, have this thing get mucked up by other matters. But uh, yeah, so I- I'm not seeing this as a big deal, but I- I am curious what what you think because that's just where I'm coming down. That's kind of where I am too. Uh, I'm not overly concerned. Look, the league wants him out. They do not want this to drag on any further. They want it to be over. They want Dan Snyder removed uh, from their group. Uh, They want D.C. resuscitated. Uh, It's a market that's been an underperformer for pretty much uh, at least half of, of the Snyder era, certainly the last five to six years. And I, you know... And I think Dan's ready to go. I certainly believe that Dan's family is ready to wrap this thing up. So I I think whether it's exactly a week from today, I think a week from today we'll get the vote. Whether or not it's exactly a week today, a week from today on the closing of this, or you know, eight days or nine days, I think it's going to be wrapped up in short order because everybody is motivated to wrap this thing up, including, by the way, at this point, Dan. Um, and I'm a little bit confused, to be totally honest with you, as to what really uh, the indemnification requests 
um, uh, slash demands are for at this point. They've been for so many different things that we've all guessed all along the way. Now, this story is specific to the John Gruden emails and liability associated with that. But Neil and Rockville was on with us this morning on radio. And, you know, he's like, look, these emails were real. Like Gruden actually doesn't have a case for defamation. Now, he may have a case um, for something that Neil, uh, you know, uh, called, I think it was false light, um, you know, uh, intentional infliction of, you know, distress, those kinds of things. And the league may have to settle with him because I don't think they want a discovery period. But yeah, I- I'm with you. I just, I still feel like the bottom line is everybody wants this thing wrapped up. Dan doesn't want to keep this team anymore. He, I mean, his family hasn't wanted this team to be kept for a while now and he got the price that he was looking for i mean it's going to be nice to have a five billion dollar you know my you know minus all the debt that he's got whatever he nets out of this four and a half billion whatever it is you know and and get the hell out of town and start a new life um because we've talked about it so much during the course of the last several years i just don't know how anybody could have had fun owning this team um, if you were in, you know, an owner like Dan Snyder. I know that there was a period of time that he was oblivious to kind of the way everybody thought about him, um, but not in recent years. And to have one investigation and one lawsuit after another popping up, I mean, this is this is a miserable experience that they have lived. And have your wife... And have your wife booed when she's uh, right, you know, shown on the jumbo on the uh, scoreboard. Yeah, um, so. yeah. I, I, I would just say like two two sort of thoughts come to my mind as I was listening to you. So for one, like there, so the two main issues that we still think are still outstanding: the marriage of White report, and then this John Gruden situation. Well. You know, I understand that Roger Goodell said that only Mary Jo White knows what's in that report. I'll I'll take that for what it's worth. But I think they must have a sense as to what it is. And, you know, they may release the full report to some degree, but, you know, they can massage it if they wanted to um, with Dan on the way out to limit any potential, I don't know, damage there should they want, you know. And then on the, on the Gruden stuff, I think the one thing that was interesting to me with regards to the ESPN report which had some interesting stuff in there for sure. But I, I almost look at it as, or before I was like, before he, I was like on the verge of saying, like I would probably bet my house <laughs> that it came from his world. But reading that story, I think it opened up more possibilities, right? I mean, it, it has them saying that Morris Smith was bragging about uh, being, being involved with, like, with, with the email that was involved with him, I guess. And then, you know, the, the the part with the NFL and the Raiders and that feud, certainly <laughs> it seems like the, the Raiders think that this is coming possibly from the NFL. So, like, I almost think, like, again, I would still guess, this is just a guess, that, uh, you know, that, that it did come from the Snyder world. And, and that was something that I thought, like, within, like, you know, how, whenever those emails started coming out, by the time we got to the second and the third one, um, I was already thinking, that. But also, look, he's he's gone and testified to Congress that he didn't do it, I believe. So, that, you know, he, I mean, that he didn't do it. It doesn't mean that somebody close to him didn't do it on his behalf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, I think the phrasing was like that he's unaware, that he, he didn't right. tell anybody, or he's unaware. I mean, yeah. he doesn't even have email. But anyway, yeah. my point is that, like, it, it, it's not like 
it's not like the ESPN report came out and said there's proof that Dan Snyder did this. So I don't know what the, um, you know, wh- where this is going to the point that it would become, like you said, per- so problematic at the last at the, at the eleventh hour here that it wouldn't get done. Look, whether or not it's funny, Neil and Rockville are, you know, one of our legal contributors actually said to me on radio this morning, he doesn't think that Snyder leaked the emails. I think, you know, what we got out of that story was something similar to what you got out of it, which is, look, everybody had motivation to leak the emails. Demore Smith is essentially on record admitting um, that he uh, leaked the emails, but it doesn't mean that Goodell didn't leak leak the emails or the league didn't, and it doesn't mean that Dan didn't do it also. It also doesn't mean that Dan didn't sort of help with that, you know, blackmail PowerPoint presentation and the presentation of certain emails specifically that essentially he didn't give it to them knowing that they would leak it, which would also benefit him because he wanted Bruce to be, you know, sort of cast in this very negative um, light. But we talked about this yesterday, uh, Tommy and I did. You and I talked about it off the air um, yesterday. The bottom line is there was a lot of motivation and a lot of obvious signs that Snyder, more likely than not, uh, if he didn't leak it, was certainly helpful in it or enjoyed that these emails got leaked um, in the moment. Now, after the fact, not so much because they did not benefit him long-term. And if anybody tried to make the case, well, the problem with your argument that Dan leaked the emails is that it essentially cost him the team. Yeah, but you don't know Dan. He didn't think that in the moment. He thought, you know, all he was thinking about was, I want to make Bruce look like the bad guy. Um, And I'd like the league to look bad, too, because they're trying to run me out of here. And I just basically got my way with the Beth Wilkinson punishment. Whatever. Um, I think, like you do, that this thing is going to be wrapped up in short order. So uh, before we get to your um, column in The Athletic, uh, I I briefly mentioned in the open of the podcast, Quinn and Williams getting this deal. I don't know if you saw this. Four years, $96 million. So... You know, he's at $24 million. Simmons is at $23.5 million. And then Duran is at uh, $22.5. Maybe Dexter Lawrence is right there with, with Duran, too. I forget. Um, somewhere I think around it's Jeffrey there. Simmons. But, yeah. S- Simmons, I know, was, was a little bit more. And so now oh, okay. and so now Quinn and Williams will be a little bit more. But ultimately, like, Duran got a pretty good deal. I mean, to be behind Aaron Donald, Jeffrey Simmons, and Quinn and Williams, when a, you know, and maybe right there with Dexter Lawrence, is exactly where I think, you know, he probably deserves to be. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> look, timing is everything. And, you know, one of the things, this was a year that, and I wrote about this was one of the, sort of a bigger takeout story that I wrote last season was that this is going to be the offseason sources thought that of the defensive tackle, like where the right. year before the receivers got paid and this year was the defensive tackles. And, and as we know, Washington needed to do something with Duran Payne before free agency started because otherwise he was going to be on the franchise tag and then that's a much bigger number for this year than what they could massage with a longer-term deal. So they got him done basically before – the rest of the market kicked in, and you know, I who knows, right? If they don't do that, I you know, I don't know how much more he would potentially get. But you know, as these deals coming after him have all been essentially the same or higher, 
yeah, I mean, it probably goes up. So he probably got almost like a little bit of a, a bump just from like, okay, let's just get this done now and not have to play with it later. And also they kind of had to, right? I mean, like I said, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a good deal for Deron Payne, um, for sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, for Washington, they needed to do something, again, because of the salary cap situation. So, um, and you know, so you know, good for them just to you know, get that part done as well. So, yeah, uh, the year of the defensive tackle and Deron Payne, you know, certainly not, again, not only did he have a really good year coming, going to his own free agency, but it happened to be at a time where basically all the defensive tackles in the league, not not named Aaron Donald, of the top ones, were all uh, eligible. You know, Chris Jones is still available, uh, out there. He, I, I would get bet he's going to be the second highest yeah, paid no defensive doubt. tackle. No doubt, yeah. When it's all done. That's right. Uh, forgot about him. He still has to get paid. Um I uh, I've we've talked a lot about in the last couple of days just Duran and and John and that ranking by the coaches, general manager, managers, and scouts and the ESPN countdown of the top ten at each position and Duran being ahead of John. Um, I, I I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with Duran being con- considered to be you know slightly better than John Allen. I did a poll. I, I don't know if you saw it or not. You know, pick one, uh, if you can only pick one, John Allen or Deron Payne. And basically 78, 79% of the people that responded said Allen. Um, who would you pick? Oh, boy. That's a great, great question. Um, and to be honest, like, uh, not to be one of those people, but it sort of ties into the story, my, my story that we'll get to about the All-Snyder team because obviously they're guys, those are two guys that you got to consider, but maybe there's only room for one of them. Um, I, I, I guess I would go with with John Allen because of not just the production, but like he is obviously a more vocal presence for the team. Um, where Duran is more of a you know does his thing and and does, is not a you know captainy type personality, which is not a knock, but just a reality. So you get a little bit maybe more from Allen. But boy, I really am tempted to go with Payne to be super honest, but uh, I'll, I'll go Allen. All right. Uh, one other quick thing before we get to your column: this Dalvin Cook thing keeps coming up. You know, Denton um, mentioned to me this morning, Bucky Brooks is the latest. Mike Lombardi a few weeks ago to say Dalvin Cook to Washington would make sense. I personally don't think it makes sense at all. I don't think they need it back. Um, and I, I'm I'm a fan of Dalvin Cook, but. You know, he's kind of a – he's one of these feast or famine guys. Like, there's a lot of, you know, zero yard and one yard and two yard runs, and then there's a big one. And that's why his average is, you know, where it is um, year in and year out. Uh, but do you think they need a running back? And do you think Dalvin Cook's even a possibility? Because I, I don't. No, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think so. I mean, you know, look, if Dalvin Cook said, look, I'll, I'm willing to play for you guys for one year at, you know, I don't know, some number that, 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 that was workable or doable or whatever, I mean, I guess I would consider anything. But, it, but realistically, no, I don't, I'm not considering it. I'm not personally considering it at all under the assumption that he's going to want to get uh, paid. And it, again, that's partly because, you know, I think Robinson and Gibson. I don't want to say they're good enough because they're better than good enough, but they are good enough. At, you know that, that that combination alone, let alone whatever else you get from the Chris Rodriguez uh, and and so on. Um, but you know, look, they only have I say only they only have like eleven million in cap space for this year. 
So even if you sign him to a multi-year deal, right, you can push that money down the line. But one of the big perks, I think, if you're Josh Harris for next year, is they've got like $80 million in cap space available. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to want to bother with any of that, uh, you know, touch any of that if um, – if I don't have to, I guess the one thing that's going to be interesting to that extent is we see this a lot, right? A new owner comes in, and if given the opportunity to make a big play, they often do. Like we saw with the Phoenix Suns owner is the current example of, right. of, of that between the Kevin Durant and the Bradley Beal deals. Right. Uh, this would be the one, a rare possibility here to get a guy who's a legit playmaker if, you know, in Dalvin Cook at this point of the offseason but I don't know that I see Josh Harris saying let's start using some of our cap space in that way. Plus, I think he, I feel like he's going to, he's a more, he's not going to be one of those uh, unhinged owners who just start spending freely because he's done this already, you know, with other teams. So I, I don't, I just don't see that it makes sense on multiple levels. All right, let's talk about your um, really fun column in the Athletic. Uh, ben had the idea of ranking, uh, putting together an all Dan Snyder era team, uh, the best players of the Dan Snyder era. I believe you've got something else coming next week that may be the opposite of this, but we can talk about that next week. So let's go down the list. First of all, give everybody what, you know, the parameters for coming up with the all-Dan Snyder era team were. Yeah, so obviously you started in 1999. Now, you know, we can quibble over. He was, you know, got the, uh, he took over after they already made some moves, but whatever, close enough. So 1999, I didn't include players who maybe played in the Snyder era, but were primarily, their best years were before i.e. Brian Mitchell and Daryl Green, uh, you know, among the locals. Uh, so I did not include, uh, I did not include those those kinds of guys. Other than that, I mean, really, it's just you know, some guys. It was a matter of did they was their one year so good that that trumps somebody who was pretty good for three or four years. Uh, you know, I, there's uh, yeah, I tried to I tried to look at like anybody who was you know an obvious you know Pro Bowler or things like that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just an interesting journey uh, to go back to memory lane. And, and, you know, obviously, yes, there will be a part two, and it's the uh, the naughty list. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, some interesting names here for sure. All right, let's start with quarterback. Tell everybody who you're – I'm not going to – we won't go through this whole list because I want people to subscribe to The Athletic and read the column. But let's talk about the a couple of the key positions, which I actually think created maybe some of the best uh, opportunity for debate. So who was the all-Dan Snyder-era quarterback? Well, let me turn this on you. Like, this is a perfect example of one year versus several, right? I mean, so where are you at? Like, the the three quarterbacks that I sort of put into this mix were uh, Brad Johnson. He, you know, first year comes in, they make the playoffs. uh, You know, they win a playoff game, only one of two playoff games that anybody won in the years of under Snyder. Uh, RG3, needless to say, you know, offensive rookie of the year. He was quite uh, electrifying, as somebody might have said at the time. And then you have Kirk Cousins, who's been the best long, you know, the, the person who's put together the most uh, years of being a, a pretty good quarterback. So, you know, get, well, how do you how do you look at that? Well, I'm just going to tell everybody you have RG3 as um, the answer, and you had Brad, <laughs> and you had Brad and Kirk as the honorable mention. Um, well, I think it's really debatable, but I don't have a problem 
with Griffin. You know, Kirk had basically three seasons as a starter here. You know, Brad Johnson really shouldn't even count because I'd love to just completely eliminate 1999 as a Dan Snyder season because he got here at the same time, by the way, the Harris's are going to, the Harris group's going to get here. And, you know, he tried to undo the Brad Johnson trade. Um, So they went to the playoffs and won a game despite him in his first year of owning the team. And it turned out to be half of the playoff wins he would have over his 24 years of ownership. But um, you know, it's not like Cousins or Brad Johnson had a long run either. And Griffin's 2012 season, which is the only season that really counts because 2013 was an utter disaster, 2014 was a disaster as well, and 2015 it even played in play. Um, I, I don't really have an issue because that year was so spectacular from a result standpoint, from a style standpoint, from an excitement standpoint. I mean, if we're going just on pure numbers and production, it's Kirk. I mean, Kirk had three years here where he set multiple passing records for the franchise. Um, but but Griffin's one year, you know, trumps, you know, you can make the case that it trumps Brad Johnson's 1999 or the Cousins' 15, 16, 17 seasons because it was, you know, he was the, the rookie of the year, 20 touchdowns. He, he had a season that no rookies ever had in the history of the game almost. And it was it was spectacular to watch. I, I I know most people would expect me to immediately, you know, shoot back. No, it's Kirk Cousins, but I understand the debate of Robert Griffin the third and just twenty twelve in 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 general as as really the year you could say was the most exciting season of the Snyder era. You can make that case. Yeah, I mean I think like if you yeah, hundred percent I, I would almost say if you stack up RG's three seasons, both in terms of what he does on the field, but also what it meant off the field. I mean, he obviously was a, a, a mega star, not just locally, but nationally at that point. I, I don't know that anybody had a season like that, a one season like that, at any point here in the Snyder era. And I don't even know how back you'd have to go, you know, to get into the you know, pre-Snyder, the Joe Gibbs, Richie Pettibone, North Turner eras to say that somebody had a more impactful year than that. Uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, to me, that nothing was a no-brainer. I definitely pondered this, everything kind of you just said with, with RG3 and Cousins in particular. But, yeah, ultimately, it was just such a huge year, uh, regardless of how, you know, again, this is a good team. You know, the other part's all other thing. In fact, I think, hypothetically, I'm, I, 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 I will at least say that, like, the idea of, could RG three be the quarterback on both teams? Came to mind, but uh, at the moment, we'll say he uh, he's on the, he's the quarterback for this team. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I don't have a, a major problem with that. So the the next position that I I wrote down here because I think that it definitely. Um, Definitely is debatable, and this is a debate uh, that I'd have about not only a former cohort, but a very good friend in Chris Cooley. You've got Chris Cooley being the tight end of the Dan Snyder era. Now, obviously, longevity and even production, it's true, but in the same way that you selected RG3 over Cousins, Jordan Reed's debatably, after Sean Taylor, the most talented player that has played here, after Sean and, and Trent Williams, 
Jordan Reed is probably top three talent. And the, the few years that he had were spectacular seasons when he was healthy. Yeah, no, uh, for, for, for sure. I, I, I wrote in the blurb that it's possible Cooley's popularity peaked after retirement. Because of the you know coming on with you and his film sessions became you know the the, the talk of oh the, well, he, of that he week. was really popular as a player no 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 but I'm saying but like he was on top of that very popular already and like so like I'm not trying I'm not factoring in the off the, the post retirement stuff but I'm just saying it's almost kind of hard to separate because it's gone I, I feel like another level but yeah I mean he was on the single year I would I would probably agree that Jordan Reed's best year was better than. Um, what Cooley did in any single year. That said, you know his numbers historically are pretty impressive. He's got the most uh, receptions among any tight end in franchise history. Fifth in, in receptions for any player. Uh, ninth in receiving yards. So, uh, and also I think also in uh, touchdown catches. So I think his like, you know, again, like we're at the quarterback. Whereas like RG three was a supernova for the one year and cousins was pretty good for, for, for three years. It, it's not the same in totality for cousins. Whereas here, I just think Cooley's numbers overall, uh, put, uh, put me in the, in the position of thinking that that was better than, than Jordan Reed. Obviously Jordan Reed, unfortunately, you know, the injuries really wrecked him, um, and, and what he could have been, but uh, that's kind of how I went on there. For me, it was just between those two. I, I mentioned some other names as honorable mentions, but yeah, to me it was those two. And uh, yeah, in this case, the overall career trumped the one year. Jordan Reed's um, stretch of playing, uh, you know, uh, uh, in not 16 games, which he never did here, um, but his stretch from 2014 through 2016, in the 2016 season, he missed games during that season too, but um, he was incredible during 2016. Now, the, the the most productive season of his career was 2015. He had 87 receptions for 952 yards and 11 touchdowns uh, during that season. Um, and that season trumps any Cooley season in terms of yardage or touchdowns. I mean, Cooley's best year was 2008. He had 849 yards. Um, uh, uh, in receptions, but only had one touchdown. The year before that, he had eight touchdowns. His first four years with Gibbs, he was highly productive. After Gibbs, not so much. But Jordan Reed, you know, when you consider just the impact he had in the games that he played, I think his impact was much greater than Cooley's on like the final outcome of the games that he was involved in. But um, if you're taking sort of the the longevity and the consistency and the availability, it would be Cooley. But that's an interesting conversation because, you know, people, I think, sometimes just write Jordan off as, well, he was just always hurt. Well, you know, 2014, he played in 11 games and had 50 catches for 465 yards, okay? But then started a two-year run where he ended up with – uh, you know, 1,638 yards in catches and 17 touchdowns in 26 games. I mean, and, and, and his lone Pro Bowl in 2016. And really, he was headed towards greatness. As I, I mean, I think most of us would agree with that. He was headed towards the elite of the elite in the game at that position. 
had he not had the concussions, which you know started once again in 2017, and 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 that was that was it. Um, it's really too bad. Uh, that's along with Sean Taylor, I think the the what if of the this the Snyder era, um, but. I don't have a problem with Cooley, and I'm glad you put Cooley there. But I think you could you could make the case for Jordan Reed. Yeah, I, I always have this in my head. I always have this thought of like, when I think about NBA players. I always have to think like there's the there are guys who are what I call them in my head a one and a half players, and by that I mean that they're, when they're on the court, you have got to constantly think about double teaming them. You can't just look at them and say they're they're still you know I'm just gonna put one person on them and that that'll be fine. You have to they're so good you have to alter your situation for them. I'm not saying Jordan Reed was in that category because obviously he just didn't play enough. But I think based on what we saw for those two years that you were discussing, that he was becoming a one and a half player because you had he was so, you know he had the size the size and the speed mismatch depending on what you did. And uh, I just think he was that central figure for this offense even more than, you know, uh, whoever else was out there, receivers, it was Garcon or Deshaun or whomever um, for those stretches. But unfortunately, it just, you know, he didn't play long enough to, to, to really put him in that category ultimately. So, yeah, so there you go. During the Snyder era, there were two, you know, unbelievable tackles. Um, Chris Samuels and Trent Williams. Uh, and you put them both in there because you – got to have two offensive tackles. But my question would be, who's the starting left tackle? Great question. Great question. Uh, I, I guess I would have to go with Trent. Well, you know what? It's sort of tough. I think just based on play and, and feeling and things like that, I would go Trent Williams. But Trent Williams also, you know, he had you know, he had the suspension for uh, – you know, for 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 uh, failing the league's drug policy, like I got to, you know, if we're splitting hairs here, we're looking for for nitpicks. I mean, that's got to be that type of situation's got to be in there. But and obviously, the end was obviously like, and I should have said this earlier. For me, for a lot of this, it wasn't just you know, did the player get this many statistics? It's also the full impact of the of the overall situation because it's the I'm calling it the Snyder team. It isn't just the player. This will be more obvious when we get to. The, the the negative list, um, but like for example, th- this is what you asked me. But like that linebacker, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about Lavar Arrington, if you just went based on the player, the talent on the field, well, he's probably a no-brainer starter. But so much of that was, uh, you know, an utter, you know, disaster because of us, the way things went down. And and in his case, I'm also factoring in the constant chirping at the organization afterwards. So. I factor in a lot of these things, and so maybe I would go against Trent Williams for some of that, but I guess I would say Trent Williams. Um, yeah, I think I would too. Uh, but I, I think Chris Samuels was a great player. Trent Williams here, I don't know that Trent Williams left here as a Hall of Fame player. In fact, I would say that he did not. Um, he left here as a great all-time franchise left tackle. But he's now a Hall of Fame left tackle after the few years he's had in San Francisco where he has actually elevated his game. Now, you know, being a part of that system and and that coaching staff um, has uh, been a big help. Um, I also think it's interesting that, like, whenever you talk to um, anybody that was around Trent Williams coach-wise, they'll just say he's the best player I ever coached. 
Like basically Jay Gruden will say, he's the best player I ever coached. Mike Shanahan will say, he's probably the most talented player I ever coached. Um, You know, I I felt that way, by the way, whenever I was, you know, you were there a lot more, obviously. But anytime I saw Trent Williams up and and close and then watched um, from – uh, close by, there, there, there's never been in the franchise's history a more athletic left tackle, although you could make the case for Jim Lachey as an athletic left tackle. Um, but I, I, I think Trent Williams would be the starting left tackle over Chris Samuels as well. Here's a position that I actually have a bit of a bone to pick with you. Cornerback. Oh cornerback. All right. Now, I've no champ. You 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 listed Champ Bailey, Fred Smoot, and D'Angelo Hall, and then honorable mention you had Carlos Rogers, Sean Springs, and Kendall Fuller. Look, I hate to say this because there isn't anybody I love more than having Fred Smoot on the show. No offense, by the way. Um, I loved I love Smoot, and we all we all love Smoot. Um, but I think Sean Springs was a better cornerback, including here. Um, than Smoot was, uh, and and I, I I think it's close. Don't get me wrong, but I I think Sean's a, uh, his run here in Washington playing for Greg Williams is is underrated. How good he was here, and by the way, that was in you know he played with Smoot, um, you know when he first got here. Um, but I think the two thousand five uh, the two thousand seven defense probably was the last really good defense before last year's defense that this team had and Sean Springs was an integral part of that. Yeah, I, I think that was cornerback may have been my, uh, the toughest decisions on for both teams. Uh, and that was certainly one uh, where he yeah, definitely went back and forth. Uh, you know, look, as you said, you know, Sean Springs is around and we still, we'll see him out there at the, Practice still from time to time, but smooth is a you know presence, uh, obviously. So maybe I don't know if you want to say some recency bias kicked in to a degree because you know, like you said, smooth's a great guest and uh, enjoy talking with him, and, and he's around. I think but, he's close, know. but he only played. You know, he played here and then went to Minnesota, then came back. You know, and was on that 2007 defense as well. I think Smoot was really good. By the way, you know, he's a Marty selection. Marty thought highly of him. I think, you know, guys like Smoot and LeVar really were hurt by Marty being run in 2001. It's very possible that Smoot would have had an incredibly productive long career in one place had Marty Schottenheimer and Kurt Schottenheimer and that whole group stayed here. Um, But I just think Springs was... I think he was underrated in some ways how good he was when he was here. I'm looking at his numbers because I don't even know what his numbers are. I just know. So, so I was just, I was, I was just going to mention, like, in uh, Pro Football Reference has a stat where they call approximate value. It's their way to right. try to attach a single number to every player, right? So between the two of them, Sean Springs had the best single season in 2004. They, it's a, uh, they gave him a 10. Uh, it's not out of ten. That's that's what they gave him. Was it was a ten, and he had two years as a seven, then two years as a three and a four. Fred Smoot had a nine and a seven, and then a six and a five in the first four years. So, like he the the peak of them wasn't that different. And Springs had uh, two years below Smoot's 
worst. I'm not counting Smoot's final three years when he came back, which I'm, which I'm not saying don't count, but I, that's, a, that's a separate version of him. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I get the argument. I wouldn't stand on a... I wouldn't stand on a on a stump and say you're terrible, you're wrong, get out of here, what a hack. But yeah, I ultimately went with uh, with Smoot, and uh, you know it's close. But yeah, I, I you know like I said, recently biased or not, I, that, that's where where I landed. Smoot certainly um, you know had the better opposite corner uh, when <laughs> early in his career when Champ Bailey was on the opposite side. Um, what was the most difficult call for you? Oh, good question. I mean, I, I well, <laughs> you just said corner wasn't easy. No, no, no. corner was definitely a challenge. I, I'll say this, you know, I mean, obviously I'm doing this like you know for real. This is a fun exercise, but doing this for real. I'm trying to come up with the best answer for each position, and I was really struggling with one spot, and then I just decided I landed on an answer that I felt pretty good with, and that was it's not just the players, but it's also the coaches and ex- executives. And for general manager, I ended up landing on nobody. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw that. And and I'm not saying that to be tongue in cheek or silly. I'm saying like for real. Like ultimately, this is where well, from, from the Dan Snyder perspective of him being involved, this is where his involvement hurt them the most. Right. We can go back as we know from the beginning, all the way at least through the end of the Jay Gruden era with the Dwayne Haskins pick of his interference being obvious. And I guess my, my point is, like, I was really sitting there trying to go, oh, my, who am I picking here, Vinny or Bruce? Or uh, is Marty, Marty for the one year? Ma- or, Marty, or, or, Marty for the one year who was in charge of everything. That would be the answer. But you're right. Yeah, I mean, he, wasn't te- he didn't technically have that title. Well, also, it was just the one year. And, you know, I mean, like, you know, we know what happened. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the – we need to, I, think, I think he was more successful there as a coach than he was a personnel guy. But, okay, anyway. So, I think ultimately, like, after a while, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I can do what I want. So, on some level, I spent way too much time thinking about something that I landed on nobody. Uh, this is a good read. Good job. Appreciate it. Um, and I will talk to you soon, I am sure. Thank you to Ben. Thanks to Mike Rizzo as well. One last thing before I leave you for the day. Three years ago today, July 13th, 2020, the summer of COVID, uh, the summer of a lot of things. Um, But it was on this day three years ago that the Washington Redskins decided officially to change their team name. They put out the following statement, quote, On July 3rd, we announced the commencement of a thorough review of the team's name. Today, we are announcing we will be retiring the Redskins' name and logo upon completion of this review. Three years ago. Doesn't seem like three years ago. God, that was a wild time. Uh, But anyway, uh, that's it for the day. Actually, I'm going to leave you with something that I found that just popped up on YouTube Uh, And I got sucked into it uh, a few days ago. Um, And it's Howard Cosell opening up Monday Night Football on ABC in October of 1978 from RFK Stadium prior to a massive matchup between the Cowboys and the Redskins. Whenever I find this stuff, I always think about throwing it at the end of the podcast. And so I'm going to do it today. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks. 
live from the national capital, Washington, D.C., a glorious nighttime view of Washington. At the top of your screen, the Washington Monument, then the Capitol Building. As we pan down to where we are all gathered, RFK Stadium, a jam-packed crowd. And not at home in the White House tonight, but rather here at RFK Stadium, the President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, together with his wife, Rosalind. Why is everybody here as the booing is for the Dallas Cowboys? Well, that's why. One of the richest, most traditional rivalries in the National Football League. The Super Bowl champion Dallas Cowboys against the surprisingly unbeaten Washington Redskins as we take a quick look at the standings in the NFC Eastern Division. There is Washington at 4-0, Dallas having lost to Los Angeles at 3-1. So, we've got a big event tonight. Washington against Dallas, Monday Night Football, the president in attendance. 20 seconds to air, stand by all cameras. Stand by in videotape. Stand by slow-mo. Stand by to open your mics on the field. Stand by in graphics, ready with your opening supers. Stand by the announcers in the booth, please. And roll tape. Three, two, one. 